Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be among you this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Joshua and chapter 5. Joshua and chapter 5. The text that we're going to study this morning is the text in which the Lord is instructing Joshua, who has just taken charge of the people of Israel, and they've crossed the Jordan River, and they're about to begin their siege on the city of Jericho. But before that can happen, the Lord needs to have a moment to have a little talk with Joshua. And that's the passage that we're going to study this morning. Joshua chapter 5, just a few verses, beginning in verse 13, down to the end of the chapter. So why don't we begin our time by reading from God's Word. Would you follow with me as I read Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the army of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it is a commonly said expression that you have heard many times in many different contexts in your life, that life is really not so much about what you know, but who you know. And I think in an important way, that is the lesson that God is teaching to Joshua in this passage. And in fact, through Joshua, would teach us in this passage. Much of life is really not so much about what you know as who you know. It's helpful to notice the context where this passage occurs. You notice from verse 13, it says that when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. And so the story goes on. You remember that Joshua has received a a commissioning from the Lord at the beginning of Joshua. Moses has died. The people of Israel stand before the Jordan River. They're supposed to cross the river, go in and to take hold of the land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joshua is the one who's supposed to enable them to do that. In Joshua chapter three, the Lord miraculously parts the Jordan River and the people of Israel cross into the land. In the beginning of Joshua chapter five, the Lord commands for the people of Israel to be circumcised and to renew the covenant. And they do that. They end the section that comes just before the passage that we read by celebrating the Passover again in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And so it seems that everything is set for Joshua to enable the people to fulfill the Lord's promise and to take control of the promised land. But before they can do that, Joshua is contemplating how exactly they're going to do that. And he stands there in the plains of Jericho, looking at this fortified city. And you'll notice in chapter 6 and verse 1, we read that Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and no one came out. And so it appears that Israel, in order to take control of Jericho, is going to have to engage in siege warfare. And Joshua is wondering, how exactly are we going to do this? We're not exactly a trained group of soldiers. Rather, we're a group of escaped slaves toddling about in the wilderness in our sandals. How are we going to take control of this city? And the Lord appears to Joshua as he is considering that in order to teach him this lesson. In order to fulfill my commands, 
your life is less about what you know and the skills that you have, and it's more about who you know. Do you know me, the one who will enable you to fulfill my commands? I think it's also instructive for us as we're considering this passage to remember that Joshua has been here before. He's been to Jericho before. You'll recall that 40 years earlier, when Israel had first escaped from Egypt and Moses had led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, they were at the edge of the promised land. And before they crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land, Moses sent 12 scouts into the land to spy it out. And those scouts returned and they gave a report to the people. And 10 of the scouts said, there's no way that we can possibly take control of this land. This land is filled with cities that are fortified and strong and they're, they're populated by giants. There's no way that we could possibly do this. The people, of course, responded by likewise being filled with fear and rebelling against the Lord, saying, no way we're going to possibly do this. And the Lord brought a consequence upon the people when he said that none of the people who have rebelled against me will be able to enter the land. And so they were sentenced to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness until that entire generation of military ready men died off. And it's the next generation that Joshua is taking charge of and bringing into the land to finally actually conquer it. But it's also... I want us to remember before we move any further that jo I want us to remember that Joshua had a different reaction than the other 12 spies who went into the land. When Joshua and Caleb came back, Joshua had a different perspective. And I want to read to you Joshua's perspective on the land in Numbers in chapter 14. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, that's an interesting name for any expecting parents to consider. They were among those who had spied out the land they came to the people, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for their bread for us, for their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. The Lord is with us. Do not fear. I repeat the end of Joshua's words for us to notice this interesting parallel. Joshua parallels the Lord and fear. Do not rebel against the Lord by fearing. In other words, rebellion and fear are synonymous in this instance. The people rebelled because they were afraid. Or we could say their fear was their rebellion. Now, I don't think we often think about fear and rebellion going hand in glove, but Joshua says that they do. And I think it's very interesting to notice that a very good case could have been made by these Israelites to explain their fear. If you were to ask some of these Israelites their perspective on this situation, they would have told you that they had a very good reason to be afraid. They are escaped slaves. They have no training in fortified cities. They have no training in siege warfare. They have no training in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And they're expected to go and do all of these things and take control of this land. And they say, we're afraid and we have a good reason to be afraid. And yet, Joshua equates their fear with rebellion. When the Lord executes his sentence a few verses later in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord says, None of those who despised me shall see it. The Lord equates their fear and their rebellion with despising him. I think the lesson for the, that Joshua learned from the original rebellion and the plains of Jericho was this. The Lord gives commands, and our obedience to those commands are not contingent upon our ability to obey them, 
but on our belief in the Lord who commanded them. When the Lord gives a command, he commands what he wants us to do, and he will also enable us to obey it. And our obedience to the Lord's commands in our life is not dependent on our skill, our ability, our perceived worth. Rather, our obedience to those commands is conditioned upon our belief in the one who commanded us. That's what Joshua believed. He believed the Lord is with us. Let's do this thing. And the people said, they're big. We can't do this thing. The difference is what you think of the Lord. The difference is not your evaluation of yourself. Joshua recognized all of his inadequacies, but Joshua believed that the Lord commanded it. The Lord will enable it. That's what obedience comes down to. That's what spiritual life comes down to. It comes down to not what you know, but who you know. Do you know the Lord? Do you believe the Lord? Do you believe that he will enable what he commands? That was the lesson that Joshua took away from the plains of Jericho the first time he was there. And what we're going to see in this incident that we'll study this morning is that the Lord reappears to Joshua to remind him of that crucial lesson that he learned 40 years ago. Don't forget this, Joshua, that what matters in your life is not what you know. What matters in your life is who you know. And I'm still here. Why don't we jump into the text and begin to study it together? I think that the lesson that Joshua learns in this text is, as I've been saying, not what you know, but whom you know. And that comes across in two points. And we'll structure this, this study around two points. First, who is the commander? And second, how can I approach him? Who is the commander and how can I approach him? And I want to begin by kind of doing an overview of the text And as I reread this text, because it's very short, I'll just reread the whole text. And as I read it, I want you to think about your own Bible reading and see if you notice any echoes, if there are any echoes triggered in your mind of other Bible passages that you have read. Let's look at it again very quickly. Verse 13, Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing there with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So in verse 13, a man confronts Joshua. He says he's the commander of the armies of the Lord. Joshua bows, takes off his feet because he's on holy ground. Many of the features of this text, I think, sound very familiar, don't they? In particular, the text that I think shouts out to us and invites us to compare with one another is Exodus in chapter 3, where the first commander of Israel, Moses, had a similar encounter. You remember that Moses is tending his sheep. He goes to fetch one of the sheep that's wandered off in the mountain, sees a bush that's burning without being consumed and says, well, that's cool. I'm going to check that out. And as he approaches the bush, he hears a voice, the voice of God himself, who says, Moses, take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. And Moses falls to the ground and worships. Now, in that text, very obviously, God was speaking to Moses. And there's near exact verbatim repetition in verse 15, where the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The way that we are to understand this text is that in this text, God is speaking to Joshua. God is revealing himself to Joshua just as he revealed himself to the first commander of Israel. Now, the question that I think is interesting to ask is, are there any differences between these two texts? Clearly, there are similarities. Are there any differences between Moses' encounter with God and Joshua's encounter with God? Certainly, there's a very obvious difference. 
With Moses, God spoke from a burning bush, but with Joshua, God appears as a man. Is it possible for God to appear as a man? Well, this is a church. I trust that you're a Many of you are Christians and you believe that God can appear as a man because that's what he did 2,000 years ago in the incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a man and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. God became a man. But we should ask, but what about in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation? Are there any instances where God can appear and reveal himself to an individual in the form of a man? And if you think about it, actually, there are. I I just want to draw your attention to one particular incident, and I'll invite you to actually turn in your Bibles back to the book of Genesis and chapter 32. Just for a moment, keep your place in Joshua, but flip to Genesis chapter 32, and we'll look at verse 24 and following. This is the point in the biblical story where we learn that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be known as the people of Israel, because it's the story wherein God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And in this encounter, Jacob has been spending the night on a river, a river's edge, waiting to be confronted by his brother Esau, whom he's afraid is very angry and is going to kill him. And he's wondering if the promises that God had given to his father Abraham and Isaac and even reaffirmed to him himself that through him would come a great nation that would send a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. Jacob's wondering, is that going to actually happen? Because it seems like my brother is going to kill me. And as Jacob is wondering these things, Genesis chapter 32, look at verse 24. We'll pick up the story. It says, a man appeared to him and that man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The man that Jacob was wrestling with was God. This is why he's renamed Israel, which sounds like the Hebrew for strive with God. So certainly in the Old Testament, there is precedence for God appearing to a human being in the form of a man, particularly in an instance in which God is reaffirming to a chosen instrument that he's going to be faithful to his covenant promises and he will keep his word if you will just follow me. But having established that Joshua chapter 5 is certainly an instance in which the Lord is speaking to Joshua. The Lord speaking to Joshua in the form of a man. We are those who have further revelation in the New Testament. The revelation of the Godhead is further fleshed out for us. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are put on display in an even clearer way than in the Old Testament. And so we could ask ourselves a further question about this appearance to Joshua. Which member of the Godhead is appearing to Joshua? John chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made 
him known. So I think we can deduce from the breadth of revelation in scripture that the commander of the Lord's army speaking to Joshua is the eternal son of God. It's Jesus. Jesus who's speaking to Joshua. That's why I think it's appropriate to call this text when Jesus met Jesus. Because they have the same name. So it's just a fun little Bible trivia for you. You could ask your kids, hey, do you know the passage where Jesus met Jesus? When Matthew chapter 1, when the angel announced to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is Greek. Yehoshua or Joshua is the Hebrew. They have the same name. This is Jesus meeting the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God revealing himself to the commander of Israel. But there's one further question, just since we are thinking about the nature of God revealing himself to his servants. If this is the Son and not the Father, I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves the question, is there something then missing in God's revelation? If we can see the Son, because no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who's at the Father's side has made him known. No one's seen the Father, but we've seen the Son. Does that mean that there's something eclipsed in the revelation of God, something that we can't have access to because we merely have a miniature representation of God in God's Son? And the scripture actually affirms that that's emphatically not the case, that all that is in God is revealed to us in his son. Hebrews chapter one says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the very image of God. All that is in God, the whole fullness of deity, Paul says in Colossians in chapter two, dwells in Christ. This is why Jesus, when he's speaking to his Friends, before he is to be delivered over to crucifixion, John chapter 14, Thomas asks him, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus responds, do you remember, by saying, have I been with you so long and you don't know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father because the, all that is in God is in Christ and that who is, that's who is revealing himself to Joshua. Now let's ask the question. We have answered, who is this commander who is this individual revealing himself to joshua what is he doing there why is he revealing himself here and the answer is very similar there's a pattern in these christophanies god reveals himself in order to affirm to his servant that i will keep my covenant word and what matters is not what you know and your ability to fulfill it but who you know and do you trust me to enable you to do it that's what god is teaching joshua in this instance in chapter 6 and following, what we're going to find is that Joshua is going to take Jer Jericho. He's going to engage in siege warfare against Jericho. But what we're going to see is that Joshua doesn't really know what he's doing. The way that he engages in siege warfare is he plays ring around the rosy. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. So God's ability to fulfill his promises that he would enable his covenant people to take the land that he promised them is not conditioned on their skill, their wisdom, and their ability. It's solely conditioned on his authority as the God of the universe to fulfill what he says he'll fulfill. Just do it. That's what he's affirming to Joshua. I know that you don't know how to take that city. That's okay. I'll take care of it. Just do follow me. This is not about what you know. It's who you know. Do you believe me? Do you believe who I am? Do you know enough about my attributes and my power and my goodness and my faithfulness that you will just do what I tell you to do? That's the lesson that God wants to teach Joshua in this encounter. The most important thing about Joshua is does he know and trust the real God? Now that is so different from our natural way of wanting to relate to religion, isn't it? Most of the time, what we're naturally interested in when it comes to 
anything in life, but particularly religion, I think, is what kind of results would it give me? Will religion be able to produce enough kind of moral change to make an impact in society? Or will it be able to elicit a kind of joyful experience in me to give me some meaning and and purpose in my life? Those are important byproducts, perhaps, but at the core of genuine religion, this text is showing us is not the results, but the person. It's not the what, it's the who. The most important thing in your life is not will this work for you. The most important thing in your life is, is this true? And does this truth reveal to you the real and living God? And if you know the real and living God, the rest of it will take care of itself. The most important thing is you, like Joshua, know the real and living God and you approach him rightly. That's what the rest of this text is about. The first thing that we've seen is who is the commander? He is the eternal son of God, putting himself on display and inviting us to know him rightly. And that gives way to the second point in the text. How can I approach him? And what I want to do in the, the rest of our study this morning is I want to notice some of the details that we've somewhat glossed over when we did that overview on the first reading. So look down in your Bibles again at verse 13. You'll see when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And what does Joshua do? He went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now that makes a lot of sense. And it it reveals something about Joshua. Joshua's pretty bold. This man standing there with his sword drawn probably was fairly intimidating looking. And yet Joshua's immediate response is to stride right up to him and ask him, friend or foe? That kind of laconic speech is perfect to characterize a man of bravery, a sentinel who is on the guard, ready to protect his people and ready to act on their behalf. Joshua strides up to him and says, friend or foe, because I don't know if you've heard, but this is our land and I'm in charge here. He's giving him two options here, buddy. Do you want to fight me or do you want to bow? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it indicates a lot of what Joshua believed about himself. But you'll notice the way that the commander responds in verse 14 is, I think this is spectacular. Verse 14, the commander does not respond with, uh, well, let me think about those options. Rather, he responds, no. No. He doesn't, it seems like a non sequitur at first, doesn't it? He doesn't even answer the question. He just says, no. Start over. You're asking the wrong question, Joshua. I'm not here for you to ask if I'm on your team or not. That's the wrong even basis to begin a conversation with me. I'm not here to join your team. I'm not here to help you. I'm not here to be on your side. I'm here to command you, Joshua. I'm actually in charge here. And I'll ask you the questions. I think we could say this is the real battle of Jericho. The real battle was really not about how skilled Joshua was was as a leader. The real battle of Jericho was, would Joshua bow to the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts? The real battle of Jericho is, will Joshua approach this commander rightly? Will he bow to Jesus? Do you notice verse 14, the way that this verse continues? He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. 
Now I have come. And we see how Joshua responds. He responds rightly. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua falls on the ground and says, what do you say to your slave? This word is translated servant in Hebrew, evid. We could say, we could translate it equally as slave. It's someone who belongs to another, who doesn't have authority over his own life, but authority over his life belongs to someone else. That's how Joshua is identifying himself now. Total change, a 180 pivot from friend or foe, I'm in charge here to actually you're in charge. Tell me whatever you want me to do. That's Joshua's posture towards the commander. Absolute, total, unconditional surrender. You're in charge. This is your campaign. My life is yours. Command me. This is the way that every human being is commanded to come to the real Jesus. The real Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He's the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. His invitation to us is not to make him our assistant. It's not to make him a part of our life. It's not to make him a convenient enabler of better experience in this world. His invitation is to bow before him and to say, command me, my Lord, what do you say to your slave? I'm yours. Those are the conditions, the terms upon which we can approach the real Jesus. That's what Joshua's modeling for us here. We naturally want to ask Jesus the question, Jesus, my life has got lots of difficulties. I've got lots of challenges in my life. I have lots of ambitions in my life. And I want to know, are you for me, for my enemies? Are you on my side? Are you going to be a helper for me? And many of the desires that we have are legitimate and good desires. I have four little children. My wife and I have a lot of ambitions for them. We have a lot of desires. We have a lot of things that we'd like to see accomplished in their life. We'd like, we have dreams for the kind of men and women we'd like them to grow up to be. I've got ambitions for my career. I've got things I want to do. I've got things I want to achieve. I've got all kinds of different ambitions for my life. And it's natural for me to want to come before the Lord and to say, are you on my side? Are you going to help me? But if we are dealing with the real Jesus, the real one, not just imaginary friend that we gave the name Jesus to, but if we're dealing with the real Jesus who objectively exists outside of us, who rules the universe, who directs every molecule in this planet, the real Jesus, if we're dealing with him, when we ask that question, we will hear a resounding answer come back. No! Because it's the wrong question. That's not the way to approach Jesus. Here are my plans, Jesus. Where can I fit you into them? That's, that's not the way to deal with him. The real Jesus will respond to you, no. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord's hosts, and now I've come. And I have an invitation for you. You can bow to me. I'm not here for you to invite me into a little corner of your life. Rather, I'm here to invite you into divine life. I'm here to bring you into my kingdom. I'm to make you a partaker of divine joy. But the way in is for you to surrender everything to me. It's for you to fall on the floor and to surrender. I belong to you. What does my Lord say to his slave? That's the only way that any one of us can approach the real Jesus. You know, the way that Jesus here responds to Joshua, it just reminds me of so many incidents from 
the life of Jesus in the Gospels. In particular, one of the things I think of is Matthew chapter 26. You remember that the, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a long account of what happens to Jesus the night that he's arrested and betrayed and falsely accused. And in Matthew 26, he's standing before some of the judges as he's being falsely arraigned and accused. And he res- they're asking him questions. And they're calling for him to respond to their accusations. He just doesn't play their game. Instead, he responds by saying, don't you know That with a single word, I could call to my father in heaven and he would send 12 legions of angels this moment. 12 legions of angels. (laughs) I have an idea of what 12 legions of angels looks like in my head and it's pretty crazy. But it took me a while to kind of work up there. Um, A legion is a Roman military term. Usually it referred to 6,000 soldiers. And so a legion wouldn't just be 6,000 soldiers. They'd also have their assistants and those who would carry their armor. And so there'd be like 12,000 people you know, toddling around with a, a Roman legion. And Jesus said he's going to call 12 of them. That's 72,000 soldiers. That's more than a whole NFL stadium of soldiers, plus hundreds of thousands of bagmen. Now, many of you probably have some kind of background in law enforcement or military, and you could put this into perspective for us, but I don't. And so I like to say, break it down like you're seven. So this is the way that I do this. Where I live in Fairfax County, there are 1,500 police officers. That's the totality of the Fairfax County police force. It would take four times that to make one Roman legion. We're talking about 72 of those just to make, just to make what Jesus is talking about. We're talking about the stadium of, of Fairfax County police officers. This is nuts. That's insane. And we're, these are not cops with glocks. These are angels flaming swords of fire and they cannot die and jesus says snapping my fingers boom they're here why are you asking me these questions <laughs> stories like that just make me pause and think what 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 silly business the angels must think when my prayers come into heaven sometimes the basis on which I ask some of my prayers must, must sound so ridiculous to the angels who are ceaselessly being enthralled with the glory of Jesus Christ. And here comes Ryan with his, Jesus, will you go here and do this for me, please? That's not the way that we relate to him. We relate to him as servants, as slaves, who, yes, we can come before the throne of grace and we can find grace and help in our time of need because he is a compassionate and merciful Savior. But the moment that we lose perspective that the Savior that we are speaking to is one of infinite, unimaginable glory, then, I mean, at best, a charitable reading of that kind of prayer would be, we miss out on how amazing it is to talk to him. Another thing that I think of as we're just contemplating who this Jesus is and how we approach him is, I quoted a a moment ago, um, Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. By his word, he upholds the entire universe. By a single word of his power, he upholds the entire universe. He's the maker and the sustainer of everything. I don't know a lot about astronomy, but I do know that the nearest star from planet Earth is really far away. How far away? If you were to take the distance from earth to the moon and shrink it down to the sh- you know a sheet of paper that distance so the earth and the moon are on top of each other then the distance from here to the nearest star is 
34,000 feet high, a stack of paper 34,000 feet high. That's 17 times the highest skyscraper in the world. And Jesus, with a single word, all of it. Isaiah chapter 40 says he's got the galaxies just in the little crest of his hand. The Jesus that we speak to, the Jesus who is our Savior, is a Jesus of unspeakable, unimaginable glory and power. He cannot, will not be our assistant, but he can be our Savior. He can be our Lord. That's what Joshua is learning in this text. I want to go on and look at the last verse in verse 15. You see that the commander of the Lord's army then replies to Joshua after he's fallen on his face in worship, and he says one simple command, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Now this is, as I said earlier, an exact replica of what the Lord said to Moses, take off your shoes because the place on which you're standing is holy, and it's holy because I'm holy, and you're not. It's just a very simple way for the Lord to communicate to Joshua that when you are in my presence, I'm absolutely entirely holy and you're not. And you need to be conscious of it. What is holiness? Holiness is simply otherness, separation. The Lord is absolutely holy. Holy primarily in that he's totally transcendent. He's not just like you, but a little bit bigger. You can hold you know, a little globe in your hand, and he holds the whole world in his hand. He, but that's actually not a, the best way to think about him, that he's just bigger than you. He's not just bigger than you. He's categorically different from you. He is pure existence itself, and everything else that exists exists from him, through him, and for him. He's not just bigger. He's categorically different than you. And because he's transcendent and categorically different, he's morally pure. And everything in his essence is categorically holy, holy, holy. It's who he is in his essence, separated from impurity. And when you come into his presence, the first thing that you recognize is, I'm not, I'm not holy. I am polluted. I have turned away. I have fallen short of the glory of this God. We see that over and over as a pattern in scripture. When people come into an encounter with God, the first thing they recognize is he's holy, I'm not. Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah responds, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Job sees the Lord revealed to him in his suffering. He says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I cover my mouth for you're holy and I'm not. Peter, who's been hanging out with Jesus for a good long time, is sitting in the boat with him, fishing along. And then suddenly he gets a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And his first response isn't, hey, guys, check it out. God's in the boat with us. His first response is, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. To recognize who Jesus is, to see he's transcendent otherworldly, absolutely pure. He's God, and I'm not. The first thing that Joshua does is he falls to worship, and the Lord says, take off your sandals. See that I'm not here to be your assistant. I can't be your assistant. I am the God who holds the universe in place, but you can bow before me. I think there's one last question that, at least in my mind, is raised from this passage. If the commander of the Lord's army who reveals himself to Joshua is in fact the eternal son of God, absolutely holy. Joshua is not holy. He's even self-confessedly a sinner. And this man is standing there with his sword drawn 
And this man is the creator of all men who himself is absolutely pure and cannot stand in the presence of sin and has every right and duty to execute all that is evil in his world. Why doesn't the sword come down? Joshua confessedly says, that's what I deserve. Why doesn't the sword come down? And of course, the answer revealed to us slowly but surely in the pages of Scripture is the reason that the commander of the armies of the Lord does not bring down the sword on Joshua is because he's giving Joshua and us a little foretaste of what he's going to do the next time he appears in human flesh. When he comes into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, he comes to redeem those who are under the law by standing under the sword for them. The reason that the commander of the army of the Lord can accept sinners into his presence is because he knows that he's going to come again. He's going to complete what he started with a little foretaste to Joshua when he comes through the womb of Mary into the world and lives a perfect human life, tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And that life culminates in him willingly laying down his life on the cross, wherein the sword of divine judgment comes with full fury upon the brow of Jesus, who is the sin bearer for all of those who will ever believe in him. The fullness of God's wrath is quenched in the death of Jesus Christ. The sword doesn't come on Joshua because he knows, the Lord knows he's going to let it fall on himself. That's how you and I can approach the Lord too. Because this Lord, full of glory, got off his throne, came into this world, died for you, rose again, now is in heaven, and he's asking not, does anybody need an assistant? But rather he's asking, does anyone want to come into divine life? Does anyone want to be part of the kingdom of God? Does anyone want to drink from the wells that never run dry? Do you want to belong to God? If so, then all you need to do is fall before him, take off your shoes and say, I'm yours, command me savior. That's the invitation that Jesus now offers us. How marvelous and spectacular would that have been for the angels? The one who for, from everlasting to everlasting was radiating the glory of the invincible God takes off his robes and descends to, into this earth that he created. The one who forever the angels have been enthralled in is now being spit upon and humiliated. The one who for eternity had been the infinite delight of his infinite father is now bearing wrath at his own father's hand. Don't you believe that Jesus is worthy of your bowing to him. That Jesus is worthy of your trust. That he's worthy of your allegiance. He's worthy of your affection and your love and your unconditional surrender. I will be yours. Command your slave. I belong to you. Jesus is worthy of that. There's no one else who is. The only way to be related to this Savior is to fall before him and say, command me. And this Jesus is worth it. And you know that the rest of the story goes on in chapter 6. It's the well-known story that every child who's had at least five minutes in Sunday school has learned the Battle of Jericho. What an absurd and silly thing it is. And it illustrates this basic, simple principle. Your obedience to the commands of God is not conditioned upon your skill and your ability to fulfill them. Your obedience to the commands of God is conditioned just on do you believe the one that commands you. Joshua doesn't know how to take Jericho. He doesn't. 
He doesn't know how to engage in siege warfare. He doesn't have the clue. But he does it because he just does what the Lord tells him because he believes that the Lord will fulfill his word. The Lord hasn't commanded you to take Jericho, but the Lord has commanded you to do a lot of things you can't do. He's commanded you to make disciples. And you don't have all the answers. And you're not perfectly holy, so you can't say, look at me and be like me. But you can't wait until you get all the answers, and you can't wait till your sanctification is complete, but you can't obey. And you can't tell people the truth about God and invite them into divine life. Because your evangelism and your making of disciples and your fulfilling the Great Commission isn't contingent upon what you know, it's on who you know. Do you believe that God is going to save his people? Do you believe that what the angel said is true, that Jesus will save his people from their sins? He's going to do that. What matters is not what you know and your ability to fulfill it, but who you know. Do you trust the God that's commanded you will fulfill his word? He'll command what he will, and then he'll enable what he commands. Do you believe that? You've also been commanded to flee from all kinds of sin. And you have difficulty with that and struggle with that in various ways and different stages of your life. But the command is not based on your ability to set up a New Year's resolution or your ability to come up with some kind of pattern and behavior and making new habits plan. Your obedience to the command to flee from sin is conditioned on do you believe that the Savior who calls you to flee sin and to pursue righteousness is worthy? Do you believe that he will enable you to grow in sanctification? Do you believe that as you behold the glory of the Lord, you will be transformed from one degree of glory into another and that this comes not from your skill or ability, but from the Lord himself, who is the spirit who is in you? Your ability to obey any of the commands of God is never, ever conditioned on your skill, wisdom, learning, strength, It's conditioned on the Lord who commanded it. Do you trust his attributes? Do you believe he'll do what he says he'll do in your life? If so, then just like Joshua, you have everything that you need in order to be presented complete in Christ on that last day when you will finally, like Joshua, see the Lord of hosts face to face and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's what the Lord Jesus is inviting into you. If you'll fall down and say, command me, Savior, I'm yours. That's the message that we learn from the commander of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we do worship you this morning, and we ask that as we have looked into your word, that you would, by your spirit, unite our hearts with faith to your word, and that you would grow us into the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray that, just as we read a moment ago, that in beholding the glory of the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory into another. This comes from you, Lord, by your spirit. So we trust you, and we ask you to fulfill your word now, that this week we would be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. She would raise our affections, she would cause us to flee from sin, that she cause us to walk in boldness and encourage before you in the world. We ask that you would seal your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.